Chapter Seven of the English Governess at the Siamese Court by Anna H. Leonowens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marble Halls and Fish Stalls. Well, by this time I was awake to the realities of time, place, and circumstance. The palace and its spells, the impracticable despot, the impassable premier, were not the phantasms of a witching night, but the hard facts of noonday. Here were the very Apollyons of paganry in the way, and only the great hearts of a lonely woman and a loving child to challenge them. With a heart heavy with regret for the comparatively happy home I had left in Malacca, I sought an interview with the Kralahome, and told him through his secretary, Mr. Hunter, how impossible it would be for me and my child to lodge within the walls of the Grand Palace, and that he was bound in honour to make good on the conditions on which I had been induced to leave Singapore. At last I succeeded in interesting him, and he accorded me a gracious hearing. My objection to the palace, as a place of residence as well as a business, seemed to strike him as reasonable enough, and he promised to plead my cause with His Majesty, bidding me kindly give myself no further trouble about the matter, for he would make it right. Thus passed a few days more, while I waited monotonously under the roof of the premier, teaching boy, studying Siamese, paying stated visits to the good Kun Ying Fan, and suffering tumultuous invasions from my intimate enemies of the harem, who came upon us like a flight of locusts, and rarely left without booty, in the shape of trifles they had begged of me. But things get themselves done, after a fashion, even in Siam, and so one morning came the slow but welcome news that the king was reconciled to the idea of my living outside the palace, that a house had been selected for me, and that a messenger waited to conduct me to it. Hastily donning our walking-gear, we found an elderly man, of somewhat sinister aspect, in a dingy red coat with faded facings of yellow, impatient to guide us to our unimaginable quarters. As we passed out, we met the premier, whose countenance wore a quizzing expression, which I afterward understood, but at the moment I saw in it only the characteristic conundrum that I had neither the time nor the talent to guess. It was with a lively sense of relief that I followed our conductor, in whom, by a desperate exploit of imagination, I discovered a promise of privacy and home. In a long, slender boat, with a high, uneven covering of wood, we stowed ourselves in the oriental manner, my dress and appearance affording infinite amusement to the ten rowers as they plied their paddles, while our escort stood in the entrance chewing betel, and looking more ill-omened than ever. We alighted at the king's pavilion facing the river, and were led, by a long, circuitous, and unpleasant road, through two tall gates, into a street which, from the offensive odours that assailed us, I took to be a fish-market. The sun burned, the air stifled, the dust choked us, the ground blistered our feet, we were parching and suffocating, when our guide stopped at the end of this most execrable lane, and signed us to follow him up three broken steps of brick. From a pouch in his dingy coat he produced a key, applied it to a door, and opened us to two small rooms, without a window in either, without a leaf to shade, without a bath-closet or kitchen. And this was the residence sumptuously appointed for the English governance to the royal family of Siam. And furnished, and garnished— in one room, on a remnant of filthy matting, stood the wreck of a table, superannuated and maimed of a leg, but propped by two chairs that with broken arms sympathized with each other. In the other, a cheap excess of Chinese bedstead, that took the whole room to itself, and a mattress, a mutilated epitome of a lazarine hospital. 
My stock of Siamese words was small, but strong. I gratefully recalled the emphatic monosyllables wherewith the premier's sister had so berated me, and turning upon the king's messenger with her tremendous, My D, my D, dashed the key from his hand, as, inanely grinning, he held it out to me, caught my boy up in my arms, cleared the steps in a bound, and fled anywhere, anywhere, until I was stopped by the crowd of men, women, and children, half-naked, who gathered around me wondering. Then, remembering my adventure with the chain-gang, I was glad to accept the protection of my insulted escort, and escape from that suburb of disgust. All the way back to the premier's our guide grinned at us fiendishly, whether in token of apology or ridicule I knew not, and landing us safely, he departed, to our great relief, still grinning. Straight went I to the Krullahome, whose shy, inquisitive smile was more and more provoking. In a few sharp words I told him, through the interpreter, what I thought of the lodging provided for me, and that nothing should induce me to live in such a slum. To which, with cool, deliberate audacity, he replied that nothing prevented me from living where I was. I started from the low seat I had taken, in order to converse with him at my ease, he sitting on the floor, and not without difficulty found voice to say that neither his palace nor the den in the fish-market would suit me, and that I demanded suitable and independent accommodations in a respectable neighbourhood for myself and my child. My rage only amused him. Smiling insolently, he rose, bade me, never mind, it will be all right by and by, and retired to an inner chamber. My head throbbed with pain, my pulse bounded, my throat burned. I staggered to my rooms, exhausted and despairing, there to lie for almost a week, prostrated with fever, and tortured, day and night, with frightful fancies and dreams. Bibi and the gentle Kun Yin Fang nursed me tenderly, bringing me water, deliciously cool, in which the fragrant flower of the jessamine had been steeped, both to drink and to bathe my temples. As soon as I began to recover, I caressed the soft hand of the dear pagan lady, and implored her, partly in Siamese, partly in English, to intercede for me with her husband, that a decent home might be provided for us. She assured me, while she smoothed my hair and patted my cheek as though I were a helpless child, that she would do her best with him, begging me, meanwhile, to be patient. But that I could not be, and I spared no opportunity to expostulate with the premier on the subject of my future abode and duties, telling him that the life I was leading under his roof was insupportable to me, though, indeed, I was not ungrateful for the many offices of affection I received from the ladies of his harem, who in my trouble were sympathetic and tender. From that time forth the imperturbable Krullahome was ever courteous to me. Nevertheless, when from time to time I grew warm again on the irrepressible topic, he would smile slyly, tap the ashes from his pipe, and say, "'Yes, sir, never mind, sir. You not like, you can live in fish-market, sir.' The apathy and supineness of these people oppressed me intolerably. Never well practised in patience, I chafed at the sang-froid of the deliberate premier. Without compromising my dignity, I did much to enrage him, but he bore all with the nonchalance that was all the more irritating because it was not put on. Thus more than two months passed, and I had desperately settled down to my oriental studies, content to snub the Kralahome with his own indifference, whilst he, on the other hand, blandly ignored our existence, when, to my surprise, he paid me a visit one afternoon, complimented me on my progress in the language and on my great heart, or chi ye, as he called it, and told me His Majesty was highly incensed at my conduct in the affair of the fish-market, and that he had found me something to do. I thanked him so cordially that he expressed his surprise, saying, "'Siamese lady no like work. Love play. Love sleep. Why you no love play?' 
I assured him that I liked play well enough when I was in the humour for play, but that at present I was not disposed to disport myself, being weary of my life in his palace and sick of Siam altogether. He received my candour with his characteristic smile and a good-natured, "'Good-bye, sir!' Next morning ten Siamese lads and a little girl came to my room. The former were the half-brothers, nephews, and other encumbrances of the Kralahome. The latter their sister, a simple child of nine or ten. Surely it was with no snobbery of condescension that I received these poor children, but rather, gratefully, as a comfort and a wholesome discipline. And so another month went by, and still I heard nothing from His Majesty. But the Premier began to interest me. The more I saw of him, the more he puzzled me. It was plain that all who came in contact with him both feared and loved him. He displayed a kind of passive amicability of which he seemed always conscious, which he made his forte. By what means he exacted such prompt obedience, and so completely controlled a people whom he seemed to drive with reins so loose and careless, was a mystery to me. But that his influence and the prestige of his name penetrated to every nook of that vast yet undeveloped kingdom was the phenomenon which slowly but surely impressed me. I was but a passing traveller, surveying from a distance and at large that vast plain of humanity, but I could see that it was systematically tilled by one master mind. End of chapter 7 Read by Sibella Denton